Many times when I've preached on our ancient forefathers, I've made a practice of pointing out that ancient people were not ignorant, not just superstitious people going through life looking at the stars, that though they don't have our technology, they were not ignorant people. We use, even today, the philosophies developed in Greece 3,000 years ago, Roman legal theories from roughly the same time, and many principles of mathematics and physics developed millennium ago. One of the interesting things to know is that traffic still travels on roads built by Roman emperors. Just recently I saw a picture of a Roman bridge, stone bridge, concrete reinforced, still standing today, and not only standing today, but taking automobile traffic for which it was never designed. Roman concrete, we still haven't completely duplicated. Modern concrete, I'm a builder, gets weaker with time. Roman concrete gets stronger with time. And I could explain to you why that is, because I do actually know, but it's something that they knew 3,000 years ago that we're just learning about in modern times. Recently, I read something that amused me. The rockets that carried the space shuttle into orbit were built of a size that could be carried by train. It had to be trained to where it was going, which meant that it had to be no wider than a certain amount. Modern train tracks are four feet, eight and one half inches wide. Believe me, they're not. It was always four foot, eight inches, and some engineer threw in an extra half an inch so that the axles, uh, the uh, flanges could slide correctly on the rails. So, but why was it four foot, eight inches wide? Well, it was four foot, eight inches wide in the United States because that's what it was in Britain. Why was it four foot eight inches wide in Britain? Well, because the Roman roads, the ruts from the chariots were four foot eight inches wide. And to reuse this technical marvel that had stood for thousands of years, they made their railroad to that scale. Now, down through time, there have been many scales of railroad tracks, but the one that has stuck is four foot eight inches. And why was it why were their wheels four foot eight inches apart? It's because they used double horse, two horse chariots, and that is the width you needed to accompany the hooves of the horses without getting in the tracks of the chariots. My point being that rockets that we send into the sky today are of a size based on Roman chariots, 3,000 years old. Just a little serendipity that I absolutely love. So. Even modern technology draws from the past space travel from chariots. So, given my respect for ancient civilizations and ancient man, why have I not given more credence towards the words of um, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians? I pointed out in recent weeks that events in American culture are absolutely inexplicable to me apart now from seeing it 
as spiritual warfare. The abortion issue, for instance, cannot be adequately explained as simply a quest for women's rights, the hysteria that accompanies any restriction on it is absurd, including late-term abortion, even infanticide. All of this argues for a demonic pushing of the issue. This transgender craze sweeping the nation seeks to overthrow God's sovereignty in the very creation of man as male and female. Instead, this reality is Subjugated to man's whim. I'm not a man today, I'm a woman, because reality is now just a construct of my mind. What other explanation then than a demon activity can really be there for denying reality? And I've never been a person, as I've said before, to the old Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. I've never been like that. And yet, what we're seeing in the world today argues to me that we are in spiritual warfare right now of the highest kind. The abandonment of the just adjudication of law in this country, the criminalization of those standing against lawlessness and for the rule of law, stands thousands of years of legal theory on its head. As the prophet Isaiah warned, lamented, 2,700 years ago, he said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And what is the upending of jurisprudence, the right to life, and God's creation order, if not calling evil good and good evil, exchanging darkness for light? In Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, the, the Apostle Paul spelled it out clearly what was going on in the world's assault on God's order and on the godly of whom Paul was numbered. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, against the Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, Paul wrote these words at the end of his life, a life full of beatings and stonings and hardship at the hands of men. Ephesians was written around 60 to 62 AD. While Paul was under house arrest in Rome and was, it is believed, soon to be executed by the emperor Nero. So he's been persecuted by men plenty. And yet he looked clear-eyed at the world he lived in and said that the battle Christians find themselves in are not against men. It's not men. 
but is in fact a spiritual battle against demonic forces, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we see ourselves as struggling against the machinations of godless men, uh, godless government, godless law nowadays with what's going on. When Paul says in reality, we are in a cosmic war against Satan and all the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now Paul really should know Wherever he went spreading the gospel, the good news, I mean, this, this is the thing. He was going and spreading good news, and even as some joyfully received it, the spiritual forces of evil entered the hearts of men to oppose him. In our study in Acts uh, 13 last week, in the end of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas were driven from city and Antioch. Verse 51 said that they shook off the dust from their feet and went to Iconium. This is where we pick it up today in chapter 14, 1 through 7. I'm going to read the passage we'll be looking at and then go verse by verse. So verse 14, after they shake the dust off their feet, says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the like... You know, I should have read this word before. (laughs) The cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Now, uh, as opposed to the Roman city of city in Antioch, Iconium was an important Greek city, made a city-state by the uh, Greeks, in fact. It was, it was 80 miles southeast of city in Antioch on a major road, the Via Sebaste, named after, <laughs> you just have to know the language, named after the Emperor Augustus. Sebaste is Greek for Augustus, apparently. It was uh, 80 miles southeast, like I said, in a fertile rolling landscape, uh, bordered on two sides by forested mountains. Verse 1 says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Uh, The Greek manuscript says Paul and Barnabas went together into the synagogue, but most Translators think that that was redundant, and what was meant was that they uh, did together as they did in Cyprus and city in Antioch, which was to enter the synagogue on the Sabbath. Just as happened also in city in Antioch, 
their preaching there was met with early success with a, a great number of both Gentiles and Jews embracing their message. You'll remember in city in Antioch they, they were looking forward. They said, will you come back and preach next Sunday, Saturday? Sunday. Saturday. And uh, we're looking forward to it in, in city in Antioch. They say the whole countryside, the whole town turned out. However, as it happened in city in Antioch also, verse 2 says, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. A commentator that I read, Daryl Bach, points out that the Jews not only stirred the Gentiles up against Paul and Barnabas managed to rile them up so much that they reacted by persecuting them. Now, Gentiles and Jews were usually two distinct groups. They did not get together for much. Uh, Gentiles viewed the Jews with suspicion, saying that the Jews, by believing in just one God, profane all we should hold sacred. Okay, And the, the irony of believing in the one true God, uh, going against everything you hold sacred, uh, always amuses me. But that is how they felt. And the uh, Jews, as they always do, were a group that held to themselves, that did not invite Gentiles into their house, so that they did not uh, make their house unclean by inadvertent action by the Jewish, uh, by the uh, Gentile peoples. So the join, joining together of these two groups showed just how seriously they took the threat caused by Paul and Barnabas's teaching. Verse 3 says, so Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. And we're not given what those signs and wonders were. Uh, It does not say in Scripture what was going on. We can assume that there were healings, perhaps making the lame to walk, the usual apostolic signs that we would have seen earlier in Acts around Pentecost. But that's not given to us. The immediate result of their divided reception was different than that in the city in Antioch. In, in city in Antioch, under Roman administration, the concern of the Romans was to keep peace. There's a reason that this period was called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace. I pointed out before that, that the Romans were primarily concerned with keeping peace throughout the empire to the point of sacrificing, killing people who they thought might rile up the peace. Because of this in city in Antioch, because the Jews came to the Roman authorities and said that these men were preaching falsely, that they were not a recognized religion, the Romans were the ones who ultimately drove Paul and Barnabas from city in Antioch. But here... Instead, the Greek administration in Icomium was more concerned with liberality than with keeping the peace. Uh, The Greek administration did not act to silence Paul and Barnabas or to exile them from the city. That would be left 
ultimately to the population. So Paul and Barnabas were able to spend, as it says, considerable time there. And I just love the the timekeeping. As I say, I, I want more information on these things. It says they spent considerable time there. Well, this entire missionary trip took place within the year A.D. 48. And remember, they've left Antioch in Syria. They've gone to the island of Cyprus. They have preached the length of the island of Cyprus. They have gone to Asia Minor, first to Perga, then up through to city in Antioch. Now they're in Iconium. When they leave Iconium, there is Lystra and Derb to go to before they return back to Antioch. This is a long trip. How long did they spend? How long was the considerable time? Was it a month? Was it two? I don't know. But they were able to spend this considerable time because despite the persecution they were going to, it was not official persecution. Paul would get to spend the rest of his life in both unofficial and official persecution. This was just unofficial persecution by the Jews and the Gentiles. And we'll see that throughout the rest of his ministry that both Jews and Gentiles were against him. And I want you to keep that in your mind that it was a combination of the two. So with all their teaching in this considerable time there, Luke says in verse 4, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. With no clear civic agreement on the teaching of the missionaries, the disenchanted populace took matters into their own hands because verse 5 says, there was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. And I I like the understatement used here once again, to mistreat them and to stone them. Uh, Mistreatment I think of as a beating. I think maybe of a whipping. Stoning had a more specific outcome uh, as you can see even yet today in the Middle East in some uh, Islamic cultures that stone people for various reasons. The outcome is supposed to be death. So the fact that they were going to mistreat Paul and stone them was a little bit more final than it reads here. Verse 6 through 7 says, But they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derb and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Knowing, as Luke has informed us, that the city of Iconium was pretty evenly divided on the subject of the teaching of Paul and Barnabas, it's not surprising that word of the plot got back to them because they had friends among both the Gentiles and the Jews, people that had come to a saving faith in Jesus because of their preaching who felt that they owed their salvation to both Paul and to Barnabas and these people made available the word of the impending lynching would be right though the Greek authorities did not order their expulsion Paul and Barnabas voluntarily left the city 
for Lystra and Derb. Now this sets a pattern that we will see throughout not only the book of Acts, but also for the remainder of Paul's life. Unremitting persecution from both the Jewish and Gentile world. And this wasn't due to the attitude, you know, I've always had an impression of Paul that he was maybe able to rub people the wrong way. And perhaps I am mistaken in that. I suspect he was intense, but he was intense in the preaching of the gospel. I suspect that he was strict, but he was strict in adhering to Christian principles. When we take uh, communion later on, we'll be speaking the words of Paul as he's chastising a church that he loved in the strongest possible terms. We can see from his letters to the churches he founded, like I say, especially the one in Corinth, that despite his unbending faithfulness to the gospel, he wasn't a my way or the highway sort of person. He was trying to convince people. He wasn't trying to tell them, this is how I believe, this is how it is, and this is how you need to act in every situation. No, he begs and he cajoles and he, uh, basically with tears in his eyes, tries to bring his people back to the faith as he taught them. We can see that in a description of him given in a non-canonical book called the Acts of Paul. We're not going to do much but give a description of Paul here because um, most people agree that the Acts of Paul, the actual Acts, were, are fiction, that they did not happen. One of the reasons they're not in the Bible. The second century elder who wrote it was um, lost his position in the presbytery because of it, but... I am going to quote this uh, because um, F.F. Bruce notes it in his writings. And he says, Paul in particular left an impression in Iconium that was not soon forgotten. It is reflected in the description of him preserved in the second century Acts of Paul, a description so vigorous and unconventional that it must surely rest upon good local tradition of what Paul looked like. One Onesiphorus, a resident in Iconium, sets out to meet Paul, who is on his way to the city. Quote, and he saw Paul approaching, a man small in size, with meeting eyebrows, we'd call that a unibrow nowadays, with meeting eyebrows, with a rather large nose, bald-headed, bow-legged, strongly built, full of grace, for at times he looked like a man, and at times he had the face of an angel. At times he looked like an angel. This short, bald, somebody else said bandy-legged. I, lo- I love bandy-legged. It brings up an old West picture, bandy-legged. This short, bald, bandy-legged emissary of the Lord God. Also of note is that Paul, and indeed Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have not hated the people who have persecuted them. Have you noticed that? Paul has not hated anyone. He has not taken, in any time that we see, any of his persecutions. But more than that, any time we see any Christian reaction in Scripture at all, 
they do not take action against those who have harmed them. Even after these early setbacks, Paul continued his ministry among those who actually wanted his death. Even though in both city and Antioch and in Iconium, he had to leave, he then immediately went to the same people groups to spread the message once again. He did not fight back. Now, my first inclination in these new dangerous times in which we find ourselves is to buy ammunition. Okay? What can I say? It's my first inclination. Probably a wrong inclination. I will give you that. But, you know, it's sort of like bad times are coming. Be prepared. But that tack was not for Paul or Barnabas. Instead, they left Iconium for new areas to minister in. Now, I have previously preached that the safest place for a Christian is doing the Lord's work in the will of God, that you will not die before God's appointed time. And while I still believe that to be true, here we see Paul and Barnabas doing the Lord's work in the will of the Lord and then absenting themselves, absenting themselves from a dangerous situation. So is that a contradiction? Is it a contradiction to leave a dangerous area while doing the, God, the Lord's work when the Lord holds your very life in his hands? And, and I am going to tell you that I am torn by this in the same way that I'm torn by knowing that we have been chosen by God before the foundations of the earth has been laid to be a part of God's kingdom here on earth and yet be told that we need to call on the name of the Lord and repent. There's a symbiosis between the divine and the human that frankly I'll tell you I don't know because I can understand the human part I know I'm a sinner and need to call on the Lord and be saved and repent. But I don't, can't visualize it from God's point of view. Even though we are given the mind of Christ, we aren't given the whole mind of Christ, the whole mind of God. So I don't know how, how being saved from the foundation of the earth ties in with having to repent and call on God. But neither do I understand on knowing that God knows my beginning from my end and he knows the day I will die. And yet, even Christ, when when he was predicting the fall of Jerusalem, told the people of his time, the Christians of his time, when you see the army surrounding the city, get out of Dodge. Leave. Head for the hills, is what he said. When, When he was sending his... Uh, the uh, 70 out on their missionary group. He said, if you have two cloaks, sell one and buy a sword. Now, I think that that was figurative, but the fact that he said it means that there is a time for evasive maneuver, even doing the will of the Lord. We have seen Paul previously escape from uh, after his Damascus conversion by being lowered down the city walls in a basket by his friends. So, 
though God directs the hour of our death, we cannot step in front of a locomotive. Okay? You can't do that. Jesus, and, and serendipity, how we say it's always, I, I love, I love the direction of God. Uh, Robin already wrote, read this, what I'm going to say in our New Testament reading today, okay? Because Jesus, when he was tempted by Satan to throw himself off the roof of the temple in Matthew 4, 3 through 7, our scripture reading for today, so, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone and Jesus said to him again it is written you shall not put the Lord your God to test and that is the closest I can give to you on the relationship between God knowing our beginning and end And how we're to react in dangerous situations. We're not to put God to the test. Just as Paul and Barnabas did not. Just as his apostles and his disciples who willingly went to their deaths for the truth of the gospel. Still nevertheless did not volunteer for martyrdom. Our fight as Christians is not a fight against people. Okay? As much as I hate, you know what, say the uh, efforts of people like George Soros are doing to the uh, fabric of our society, he is not the enemy. As much as I detest communists tearing down this country and the things we stand for, our fight is not against them. As much as I push back against Satanists, uh, transsexuals, the LGBT agenda, and all these dangerous, disruptive ideologies, our fight is not against people. People are who we are called to go and minister to. Just as Paul and Barnabas were called to go minister to the people who were going to try to kill them. Christians are not the weapon to physically crush the enemies of God. Instead, we are called to bring God's light wherever we go. To force this present darkness by God's light to recede. Because where there is light, darkness cannot be. I'm afraid we're going to be seeing that in the time, days to come. Let's close in a word of prayer.